Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine statewide campus system, the MedEd Transformation Podcast. This podcast is designed to give you strategy for implementing change. I'm pleased to be joined uh, today by uh, Dr. Richard Boyatzis. He is a distinguished university professor of Case Western Reserve University, professor in the Department of Organizational Behavior Psychology and Cognitive Science. He's the HR Horvitz Professor of Family Business and an adjunct professor in Cognitive Science. He has a BS in Aeronautics and Astronautics uh, from MIT an MS and PhD in social psychology from Harvard University. And using his intentional change theory, he studies sustained desire change at all levels of human endeavor from individuals, teams, organizations, communities, and countries specifically has been researching, helping and coaching since 1967. Dr. Boyas, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Deborah. So in your most recent book, um, Helping People Change Through Coaching with Compassion, uh, you discuss um, our true, that our true passions often get left behind or pushed aside for more pressing issues. And that's just kind of everyday life for many of us. Um, right. you, you suggested that reflection can return us to a place of purpose. And this really is referred to as your intentional change theory. Can you describe this theory and how it can impact and influence our response to change? When I started um, and I was leaving the, the field uh, in the mid 60s of designing interplanetary vehicles and I was shifting into psychology, uh, one of the things that became fascinating to me was how people helped or didn't help each other. And I started out with some experiences working in um, research and designing some of the space vehicles for one of the companies and then just started looking at how graduate students were helping each other or not. But it all started to ask the question, how do people, how do humans change in a sustained, so it sticks, desired way? Today's variation of that in medicine would be what affects treatment adherence? And that, leads, that led me to creating with Dave Kolb the earlier versions of this theory that have since morphed, and I call it intentional change theory now. But the idea is that uh, humans don't change rationally. They change through a complex interaction of very uh, emotional and some rational, some affective, some cognitive, a lot of unconscious but the process always emerges using complexity theory through five discoveries, one of which is what you want out of life, what kind of purpose drives you, what's your vision or dream of an ideal life. Not goals, uh, goals are very much too narrow, but the, the, the sense of purpose or vision is a major issue. 
And if you have that, you're actually eligible for the second stage, which is how do I come across to others? Not what do I think of myself, which is I call it the real self is how you come across with others. Because when you ask people about themselves, what you get is usually delusional. And, and this comparison of how you're coming across to others with your, excuse me, dream gives you, if you will, a, a personal balance sheet. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? A third discovery that can pop um, is what's your agenda for what you want to learn? And this is the one that's really tricky because it does not have to do with performance improvement plans or a program syllabus or things that other people have imposed on you. And in fact, what it says is, what's the one or two things you want to try that you absolutely are joyful about? That's your learning agenda, your real learning agenda. If you get through that phase, you get into the phase where you actually pick something, a strength to enhance or a weakness to work on, and you start to play around with it. And that through some purposive experimentation and then practice, you actually start to have some shift either in what you want out of life or in your behavior or attitudes. And all of this is facilitated by the medium of your relationship with certain people around you, which we call resonance or are caring relationships. What I've been showing through my fMRI studies, as well as the hormonal studies and all of the longitudinal behavior studies is that most of the time when we want to help somebody, we try to fix them. We tell them what they should do. And whether it's wearing warmer clothes in the winter or how they should dress their children or what they should do to be a better team player or physicians and nurses will sometimes talk about what a person should do to recover from surgery or uh, from some disease that they have. And you know what? you know, and everybody in medicine knows, is that treatment adherence is about 50% for type 2 diabetics. It, for um, ortho, orthopedic surgery, it's about 50%. My cardiothoracic surgeon friends of mine tell me for coronary bypass patients, it's about 20%. And I contend it's because when physicians and nurses try to help, quote unquote, a person learn about what they should do, they go about it mostly by trying to scare the hell out of them. And in doing that, it's what we call coaching for compliance. You're actually trying to help some, some person to comply with what you think they should be doing. And how does the other person experience it? You're pushing them around. And at that point, even well-intended, you've become a helping bully. And you know what? We now have the evidence to say, that neurologically you activate networks in the brain that close people down to new ideas. You activate more of the sympathetic nervous system, which leads to, at, at, as it piles on the other forms of stress, it, it leads to cognitive and perceptual impairment. So- I, 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 I love that you said that, um, that, that uh, you know, trying to scare people um, that, that more coaching for compliance is not sustained. It's not sustainable right. change. It's you scared me. I'm going to change myself for this immediate time so that I look like I'm doing better, but that, that doesn't stick. 
Yeah, I, I just got off the phone with the researcher at Stanford who's in um, dietary sciences, and she's doing some research on dietary-driven chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes or the myriad number of things driven by uh, obesity or high BMI. And it becomes very, very clear that people know, on the whole, they know what they're supposed to eat. They know how much they're supposed to eat, but they don't. Why? Because when people try to lose weight, they can't. I spent a good deal of time in the 70s doing psychotherapy with alcoholics and drug addicts as a clinical psychologist working in a lot of hospitals. And it, it became very clear to me early on that if all they were trying to do was get sober or clean, they'd be back drinking or using within six months. Now, be clear, they had to get sober or clean, but they had to have some bigger reason for doing it. And it almost always involved something about rebuilding their families or becoming a citizen again or finding a place with their God. But it was always bigger than just the one thing. And I think it's the same thing that when you negatively frame of something, it has a shorter term durability because it's effort. You know, if you want to change, it's effort. So, so that really goes back to what you just said, that there's that sense of purpose or what's your vision? What's right. your sense of purpose for, for living or getting sober or losing weight or, or anything that we're trying to coach our patients to wellness or even for ourselves as, as faculty and right. healthcare providers? And all too often within healthcare, if a person does come to you because they're not feeling well or something's wrong or they're sick, or ill of some sort, they want you to fix them. So the tendency to go to a pill or to go to a quick fix is rampant. And if they're taught that, oh yeah, okay, all we have to do is go in and cut this out and you'll be fine. Or look, you know, here's a set of pills. This will alleviate the chronic pain. Now we've just contributed to the opioid crisis. So part of the dilemma is by people in healthcare not thinking about the patient uh, holistically, we run into problems. By not thinking about the fact that you're not just working with or treating a patient, you're treating a whole family. Or you might be treating a network of people, but the fact is that it's not just one person. So the question ends up being, how, what do you do? Well, that's where if you try to help them thinking about purpose, thinking about their ideal self, their dream, thinking about caring relationships, thinking about them helping others. These are all things that appeal to what in my theory is the positive emotional attractor. But for most of your listeners, uh, the key is, it is being in a psychophysiological state, which is characteristic of the parasympathetic nervous system, not the sympathetic, and more characteristic of the default mode neural network than the task positive neural network. And in those parts of the psychophysiological arousal, we now have plenty of research to show a person's more open to new ideas. They're more open to another person. And they actually might consider the, the effort it takes to learn or change. 
So the fascinating thing is, you know, our entire system of higher education and graduate education, including medical school, is designed at beating the hell out of people and squeezing any learning from them. So one major study that wasn't intending to do this, they were testing out different pedagogies, but they found for 28-year-olds in a full-time MBA program, top 20 ranked in the U.S., their retention of what they could produce in the first semester accounting course on the final exam, their half-life of their knowledge was six and a half weeks. When they took the final exam again, six and a half weeks, they could only reproduce half of what they had done earlier. So one of the dilemmas, I, I had this argument in the early 90s with deans of medical schools that you're so busy cramming stuff into people's heads that you think they're actually learning it. And the sad thing is people are actually forgetting most of it. Uh, and until medical students are actually working with patients, they don't even have the chance of having the emotional engagement that might lead them to remember something. Uh, so I think that was a part of, you know, getting people to working with patients way before the standardized patients of the third year. Sorry, I can go on and on and on. I should stop and let you ask more questions. No, that, that's quite all right. I'm, I'm, I'm always uh, fascinated to, to listen to, to what you have to say and, and share. Um, but one of the things that you said is that uh, one of the big questions is how do I present myself to others? And that vision can be facilitated or be seen if we facilitated by those around us, those that, that care for us and the yes. those resonant relations. Um, in your book, you talk a lot about the differences between a coach and a mentor and an advisor. Um, and I, I, I'm thinking in, in these facilitated uh, relationships we have, those people can really fall into all three of those categories. Can you help differentiate? Yeah, and it's talk about where we as faculty should kind of fall. Right. One of the things I'm saying is most faculty understand how to be a teacher, and which is transmission of um, knowledge or inspiring people to work with new skills and perspectives. Most of us spend a lot of our time, if not all of our time, working on that. Some of us are actually good at the mentoring side, which is a person wants some guidance and maybe some tips or maybe some networking. But there's another part of the helping relationship that we need to nurture. And that's what I would call the coaching part, which tends to less of the instrumental and more of the relational or, um, if you will, socio-emotional part of a person's learning. And that's where um, just being a good mentor around opening doors and networking and just being a good teacher are important and they're very helpful, but it turns out that if you really asked people after they finish a graduate program, including medical school, who were the faculty members who really helped you the most, they will mention the one or two or three people. And then when you say to them, what was it about what that person did that made it so different than all the other faculty you had? And they will always talk about the fact that they talked to me one-on-one. -on -one. 
they cared about me, not just am I, you know, preparing for the test properly or, um, you know, have I done all the things I need to do to get a good match in medical schools? But they actually got to know me. Um, and that really helps us understand that the emotional and I would say physiological condition in which we really start to be open to learning and sustaining that or retaining the learning and possibly changing our behavior in terms of new skills or modified uh, comportment or style all has to do with this more relational based coaching. So, so with that, um, you know, it, when you're in, in medical school, your advisors are, are chosen for you. Here are your advisors for medical school. Um, your faculty are chosen for you. You have to take this course. Here's your faculty uh, person. And then sometimes even when we talk about graduate medical education, you're, you're put into the, the match of residency. And sometimes you get right. at a residency and maybe not all the faculty, you know, click with you or, or, or faculty aren't able to make those connections. Or what's you. worse. Yeah, I hate to say this, but do they care? Right. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the, elef the elephant in the room, you know. Yeah, and, and, let's, and let's face it. I mean, I, I don't know about in your school, but in, in Case, which has a fairly large, and I think, well-known uh, medical school, and it's, uh, it shares all of our facilities with the Cleveland Clinic Medical School. Actually, they take the same courses and all that. But um, our medical school faculty aren't paid. And you can even get tenure and still not get, a, get anything paid for it. You know, they're paid in terms of their clinical revenue or the grants they could bring in for research. So the actual teaching, nevertheless mentoring or coaching, is all done pro bono. So it's not odd that you might get a faculty member who is really good, maybe the world's expert on a particular type of emphysema. And they do a lot of research and they bring in millions of grants every year. So they see patients and it's easy for them to slip into the cult of expertise, in which case it's a little annoying to answer the patient's question. Um, and that's, it's in, meta, in hospitals, although many of us have been trying to talk, I mean, I, I did my early work in hospitals Although I was being a clinical psychologist in, in the uh, addiction units, I was also working on, you know, in the early 70s, how do you get physicians and nurses to treat each other and the staff the same way they treat patients? Uh, because I was calling it the schizophrenia of, um, of hospitals. But today, you still run into this. And the one thing that's changed in hospitals is the... Um, uh, patient experience data that all of a sudden people are stopping physicians don't think of it all as marketing but maybe it does have to do with care what my research has helped to make a link for and a lot of physicians already get this is that if you treated people toward what i call this positive emotional attractor where you did things that expanded their sense of compassion and hope in the interaction with them, you actually help their immune system. 
because the parasympathetic nervous system helps the immune system engage and go into high gear. And the sympathetic nervous system, although useful for many things at work and in life, actually causes a, an inhibition of the immune system. So we'd actually, as caregivers, help the patients with the maladies, not just developing as a new doctor, or physician, or nurse, but help them, the patients, um, if we used some of these techniques. And yet, we're not compensated that way. You're certainly not even hired for that. I mean, most medical school faculty are hired like most faculty in any other school within a university. You're hired for your publication and your research. So you're hired because, excuse me, but you're nerdy. <laughs> and, uh, and God help us, the people who become department chairs or deans or provosts. I mean, I, I used to, I still joke and say, uh, universities are the only place where you can get promoted on a regular basis up the hierarchy for knowing more and more about less and less every year, <laughs> because that's the nature of specialization. Right. Anyway. The, the more specialized you are, the less you know about. Yeah. You know, so, so what that results in is, look, it wasn't that long ago in which if you looked at internal medicine within a medical school, or you looked at family medicine, you're looking at, units that are seen as kind of one small step above social work in the status hierarchy. So what does that say if, if you know, pediatrics is in there too? I mean, these are the three specialties that are the most holistic. Today, I'm glad to say, I think in a lot of places they're seen very differently and you have entire healthcare systems like the system in Canada, which hits so many great outcomes because 50% of their physicians are internal medicine, primary care physicians, not 25% like in the US. And specialists can't be paid more than 75% of what the primary care physicians get. So the Canadian system is really geared towards um, getting people to be willing to talk to their primary care physician and do it soon and easier and you know, if you will prevent a lot of the uh, increasing severity of problems or even prevent the problems to begin with. Agree 100%. So in order to gain that relationship with our patients or with our learners, there still has to be a want though to be this good coach, um, to create these yeah. positive emotional uh, attractions. Right. What, what so, are some of, how, how do we do that? How, how do we okay. get somebody to want to be a good coach? In, in 1965, Howard Becker, a very famous sociologist, published a book called Boys in White. And it was the study of what it meant to go through four years of medical school. I think it was at Kansas State University Medical School. He and his research team sat in. They went through medical school. They had thousands upon thousands of pages of field notes. And Howard Becker was famous for creating what's called participant observation in the field of sociology. Okay, so to boil down a lot of learning into the major message in their book was that people entered medical school wanting to be healers. And by the end of the first semester, all they could think about is passing tests. And that by the time they get into their internship, it's to get a good match 
and then get a good internship so they could get a good residency. And then when they're an intern or resident, as how do you stay awake for 36 hours in a row? How do you not administer the wrong drugs to the wrong person or take the liver, part of the liver out when you're supposed to be removing a kidney? You know, and then once you, you know, become a practicing physician, you know, how do you cover your uh, medical malpractice costs? So literally, they showed in those, in that era, that the desire to be a healer was being squeezed out of people. I've got to say, um, I'm not sure it's come a long way. I know in the 90s, it hadn't budged. And what that means is, although I think the pedagogy being used today in many medical schools is a lot better. You're engaged with patients, you're engaged in peer coaching, you're engaged in team delivery. But, but because, at, the same, at the same time, though, bur burnout and, uh, is right. still very high in the medical field. And as long as that's the case, uh, the idea of wanting to be a healer and remembering that is going to be chased out. Because Look, <clears throat> I mean, among the many different neural networks, as my colleague Anthony Jack is, is doing all of his research on, you know, we have the task positive network in the brain that helps us solve problems and make decisions. And then we have the default mode network that helps us to be open new ideas and people. Now, and obviously somebody who's going to be a good caregiver or hailing professional, helping professional is going to treat their patients with both of these. But the problem is if you overemphasize through technical specialization and stress the analytic, it suppresses the other. These two networks suppress each other. They're antagonistic. So every time we up the stress, not only do people forget what they're learning, but they also suppress their openness to new ideas and other people. So the dilemma is we have to find better ways during the medical school experience of helping people remember that they're there to be healers, that they're there to discover new things, that they're there to, in any shape or form, help people. And the more we can help people think about that, the more we can do this by modeling that, by the faculty modeling it, by encouraging the students to help each other. I think that, you know, and study groups aren't just functional, they're also emotional supports, that the more we can do that, the more we can counterbalance. I mean, it's classic. What we're trying to do is interrupt the sympathetic nervous system overdosing people by periodic moments of um, the motions and the experiences that arouse the parasympathetic nervous system. I don't mean to be overly simplistic about it, but it's not that hard to figure out what to do. It's hard to actually do it. <laughs> it is hard to actually do it, but I, I, would, I would think that many of us, probably including myself, or most likely including myself, that if I were to be asked, you know, am I a good coach to my learners? I'm going to say, yeah, that's, I, I feel that I am a good coach. But then, that yeah, but, does, then, but then going back to the question that you said, how do I actually present myself to others? Right. I don't know. I'd have to ask others. Do I Deborah, present myself as a good coach to them? Deborah, back in the late 50s, a very renowned professor, Ed Hollander, in, at uh, Bernard Baruch, was studying leadership, and he first documented that people's self-assessment of their behavior or skills 
was delusional. So here, flash forward, uh, one of the doctoral students, former doctoral students of mine, who's a senior faculty at Babson, uh, he's published, I don't know, eight, 12 papers on how people's self-assessment of their behavior is off. It's really off. And male professionals tend to be overestimators. We always think we have more of this. Female professionals tend to be un underestimators. Uh, and the net result is hardly anybody's doing it well. So if you ask people, are you being an effective coach? Of course, people are going to say yes. You know, that's like my wife. You know, it's me saying to my wife, I'm a very flexible person. And she laughs. <laughs> so I've said for years, you know, to my doctoral students, if you want to measure a person's adaptability or flexibility, ask their spouse or partner or roommates if they don't have them. Um, but that's the problem. So if we want to know whether or not a particular faculty member wants to know whether or not they're really being an effective coach and mentor, there's no substitute for finding that out from your students, like trying to find out from your patients whether or not they feel you're helping them. Now, the problem is if they ask, social desirability or fear will lead people to say, yes, of course. Oh, you know, there's God and then there's you. But yes, of course, you're fantastic at this. So what you have to do is rely on um, other ways to try to figure that out. Sadly, one of the pieces of feedback that physicians get are malpractice claims. I mean, I, I know a number of people, one of my good friends, Helen Reese, is a senior faculty member at Harvard Medical School and a psychiatrist at MGH. And she's been studying empathy uh, between physicians and patients uh, for quite a few years. And she's the one who's made the link to those physicians who use more what we call emotional and social intelligence behavior in building their relationships have a minuscule number of malpractice claims. I'm talking to some other folks who specialize in entire consulting companies who specialize in medical malpractice, um, their point is somewhat sobering that was 88% of all events of malpractice never get reported, but of those that get reported or filed, 92% um, of them have to do with a breakdown in the relationship between the doctor and the patient, and the physician and the patient. Yeah, there, 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 there's yeah. something to say about the bedside manner and like the, physician, yeah. the uh, our, our ability just to talk to the patients and, and relate to them. Yeah, and the people who practice more holistic medicine understand that that's not just to avoid malpractice suits, it's also to help strengthen the immune system. Well, yeah, because then we're, then to, to your point, we would get back to helping them see right. what they want to change and their, their purpose, their vision, not ours. Yeah. So the same way in, you know, you're trained as a healthcare professional not to treat the symptom, but to treat the problem or the disease. Um, you know, as a psychologist, I'm looking at not just the fact that some people do have physiological problems, diseases, or biochemical addiction, but there are also a huge number of behavioral problems where people get into good old-fashioned bad habits. Uh, the fact that anybody would smoke cigarettes or 
even vaping, it just seems so absurd. Now I smoked for a number of years, that was decades and decades ago, but I've also lost, you know, um, one parent and two in-laws to cancers related to their smoking. So, you know, but when you're 18 or 20 or 35 or even 45, you may think you're immortal. That's a bad habit. Uh, changing habits is really hard, but it's a behavioral issue, not just a medical. So I, I love that you're bringing up this point now. Um, in, in your book, um, you said uh, trying to fix someone is the biggest problem that we can make. Yeah. But we as healthcare providers, that's what we want to do. We want to fix them. Well, that's right. And to a large extent, the more you see it that way, the more, as we say, you're part of a problem, not the solution, because you become a helping bully. And people don't respond. You know, they'll nod their head, you know, so you tell them they have to lose weight because of their cardiovascular or other things. So they join a health club, they go for a few weeks, and then they stop. You know, or the more creative is to apply, you know, Al Gore helped us with this notion of, you know, buying carbon offsets as a way to alleviate our guilt for polluting the environment. You know, so I wondered whether or not you could buy um, kind of caloric offsets, you know, hire thin people to stay thin and then alleviate some of your guilt for being overweight. <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't have to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I want it to be uh, absurd <laughs> to be able to bring the point home. Right. No, no, I, I get that. So we, we, we want to be able to give uh, some tips and to our yeah. faculty on, on themselves changing from being right. that more mentor coach or, you know, yeah. coaching for compliance type person. What are some ways that we can change as faculty so that we can better um, be of servant to our patients as well as our learners. Sure. Now, I'm about to break my code, but you asked me, so I'll tell you the actual uh, couple answers. One thing caregivers have to do, whether you're physicians or nurses or aides, you have to pay attention to your own renewal. You're under stress as a normal professional and it's strain levels, allostatic load over the top. You know, you have something like this COVID-19 and you've got all of this craziness about elections and social disruptions and racism and sexism and all the other isms. And that's acute stress on top of it. Boom, you're overloaded. And if you don't, as a person, dose yourself with enough small doses of what I call renewal. You can think of it as clearly parasympathetic activation. Each day, you're going to deteriorate. You will not only be exhausted, but you'll do irreparable inelastic damage. And it could be to your mood or your, you know, you get depressed, but it could also be to your body. So the first thing is, um, it's not physician heal thyself. It's, you know, health, healthcare provider keep renewing. Uh, so 
I, I just finished a, a paper that's coming out in the Consulting Psychology Journal on a test that Dan Goleman and I developed to help people reconcile day-to-day, everyday experiences of renewal versus stress or parasympathetic versus sympathetic activation. So we know things like meditating and yoga and Tai Chi and prayer to a loving God, modest exercise, being feeling hopeful about the future, don't watch the news on TV, being in a loving relationship, helping people less fortunate, um, having a dog or cat or horse or monkey, but some a, a pet you can stroke, laughing, being playful with folks, and taking a walk in nature. These are each things that have five or more published studies in medical or psychological journals that say they activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And what we now know, and in my recent paper we're talking about this, is that it's better for you to do short doses, 10 or 15 minute doses throughout the day than to try to get a whole hour or hour and a half because you're going to do a lot more interrupting all of the parts of the sympathetic uh, endocrine secretion and all the rest of it. I'm, I'm so glad you, were, you, you literally just um, gave me data to support what I've been telling my learners. Yeah. I said, you know, when you get into medical school, you were something else before that. Um, you know, you were a tennis player, you danced, or you sang, there, there was something other than medical school. And right. once, and, and we find that once we get into medical school or professional school or, or life in general, that we lose that part of us. Yeah. And it's like 20 years before you realize that you haven't sang or danced or. Well, and by then you've gone through two, if not three midlife crises, and you've probably acted out inappropriately. Um, that too. And you're on your second or third spouse or partner. But so, so the issue, by the way, I just wanted to add one more dimension, Deborah. It's not only you need more frequency of smaller duration moments, you also need more variety. Because if you always go to yoga or you always go to physical exercise, you're just replacing one bad habit with an excess of a good habit, which becomes um, habituated and therefore loses its power to help activate your parasympathetic system. So oh, our, a, our recent, our recent paper, actually, I used to say that in the seventies, but we now have the data to show that the variety is as potent on sense of well-being, on re, an increasing empathic concern on decreasing distress and, um, you know, perceived forms of stress yourself. So if you start with yourself, you are more likely to be prepared to be tuned into and sensitive to doing this to others, whether the others are medical students or colleagues or patients. But eventually, that's where you want to get to. You want to get to the fact that you want to be infectious, but you want to infect people with renewal with parasympathetic activation, to put it simply, or overstate the case. But you want to infect people with hope, with caring, with playfulness, with mindfulness. So, so do, you, do you start those interactions or conversation? Is there, is there a, an opening line or, or something where we can build that into the conversation? Because oftentimes it's we, you know, student, Learner, I'm going to give you feedback now. Should we be taking a step back and right. saying, how are you? 
that's one good because it's almost impossible to listen to the other person without listening to them. <laughs> Sorry, it, it, it's a silly way to turn a phrase. Um, so you have to actually ask them a question. And the question might be, you know, especially if you're like doing rounds, you might want to kick off the rounds by just asking people why they're doing this. You know, if somebody says, well, you know, I'm assigned. Well, why? And they say, well, because we have to complete it for to get out of our sophomore year, our second year. Well, why? You know, what you want to do is get them back to saying, you know, I'm doing this because I want to learn to heal people. I want to help people. And by the point that you get people to reconnect with that purpose, you may have used up a few minutes but now they're going into the rounds a lot more open to learning. That's just one example. The CEO of a very, I mean, amazing CEO built the SUMA healthcare system. Um, guys, it was just amazing. He retired a few years ago. One of the things he did when he went from one hospital to 16 hospitals and outpatient clinics is he would have a 60-minute meeting in his office once a week with the heads of all the units. And he, at the end, as they're leaving, he would pick two of them and say, I want you to bring in a story of a patient that's helped in your facility in this coming week. So they'd come back a week later, he'd turn to the two people he picked, and they would each tell a story about someone who was helped at their facility. So he was, he's a brilliant guy. He gives up five to six minutes of his 60 minutes for reminding everybody that they're there to heal and help people and they're feeling proud. Now they could talk about budgets and other problems a lot more openly. Yeah, you, you talk about that in your book, uh, initiating inspiring conversations That's by right. simply talking about who helped you. Yeah. You also have an exercise that... Um, in, in your book that you ask people who's reading your book to do about identifying people who inspired you at different time periods in one's life. Um, I, I think it's at the Yes, end of, and actually, and, um, and, and actually we do both parts of this. We ask people who helped you at different points in your life and then who inspired you. And the reason I'm making a distinction is that for most people who helped you evokes uh, gratitude, which is a very important positive emotion. When you ask who inspired you, sometimes you get the gratitude, but sometimes you get a comparative evaluation that makes you feel lousy about yourself. Like if I'm always comparing myself to Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or um, Jesus, I'm going to fall short. <laughs> so while those people are very inspiring, if you always compare yourself to them, um, it may help in a lot of places, but it may make you feel guilty that you're not doing enough in others. So I think you want to look at both sides of that, who helped, who inspired. That, that's a good point, because as I was going through this exercise, um, I actually did that the exercise in the book of who inspired me. Oh, good. Um, and and very, very young in my life, I, I had somebody tell me that I couldn't do something. Right. Um, and so that inspired me to do it and prove them wrong. 
Um, you bet. But when, but when I reflect on that, it was it wasn't it wasn't a warm and fuzzy feeling. No, that's right. And I would contend, Deborah, that whatever it is that you had to do didn't sustain itself, and either you stopped doing it prematurely, or once you were doing it, you loved it, and it transformed it to a positive motivator. But most of the time, when you do it because you want to show somebody else, it has a short duration. Correct. L luckily for me, it was, I, I, I did it, and I loved it, and I... Ah, okay. So... <laughs> The, the experience transformed its meaning to you, and that was the thing that sustained your ability to keep it going. Correct. Correct. So. Are you well, getting some of the answers or I, ideas I, um, that you I, were hoping to, for in this? Oh, most definitely. I, I have so many notes uh, here that I was just jotting down as, as we were talking, but. Um, One of the things, let me add something, because I, I mentioned it in chapter, uh, I think, eight of the book is that one of the things that helps folks in professional organizations is to form what I call these days peer coaching groups, but most of us got through our graduate years in study groups. And when the study groups work the best, they don't only help you with tasks and you know uh, preparing for tests and performance issues, they also work on the social and emotional parts of it. So in our book, we talked about the importance of people and organizations forming peer coaching groups, you know, five to eight people who meet, whether it's once a month for a long dinner or once a week for a long lunch. You know, I don't know about the periodicity, but the idea is you meet regularly with the same people and you can cover the task issues, but you also want to make sure you cover how each other's going through life, because that doesn't require paying somebody a huge fee and is something that is very uh, enduring. Are, are those coaching, peer coaching groups um, meant to be... Uh you know, all the, all the program directors are, or, or. No, I would say, I would not, you know, if you try to segregate it by hierarchy, you might get into problems, but I would say it has to be among peers. So okay. if you see each other as a peer, then that's enough, even if okay. you may be at a different level. Uh, so for example, in universities, uh, being a dean is not a promotion from being a tenured full professor. And matter of fact, most of us see it as a demotion. Um, so, you know, and being a department chair, you know, is nice for a, a year or two, but then it just, you know, drags you down and sucks all your energy. Um, so what happens is, you know, you could mix, you could have this, a peer coaching group in a university setting that has professors and deans and department chairs mixed because they are all peers, even though there is, the outside world, a hierarchical difference, there really isn't. Uh, so, but the idea is to get five to eight people. And I would say always try to go for eight because some people may not be able to make every gathering um, who feel like um, they like each other. Well, that, that, that helps. And then in the book, in, as you know, in, at the end of many of the chapters, we have a section on reflective exercises for individuals, but we also have a section called conversation guides. 
And those are things you could bring up in a study group or a peer coaching group as a way to keep yourselves working on some of these things. I love it. I, I, I've gone, I, I listened to the book on audio I, and then I have the hard copy and, and took notes and uh, questions and I went through many of the activities um, and I just thought, you know, it, it, it really opened up my mind to other ways of um, helping my learners as well as my patients. And that's I'm great. That, I'm hoping that uh, others have found the same thing. I know uh, Dr. Rohr, John Rohr, who's our associate dean of the statewide campus system, he speaks of your book and just about every presentation that he's oh, given that in the nice. last couple months <laughs> as well. Um, and we had uh, Elaine with us. Um, Yes, right. Yeah. And she's we've she's worked gonna together. Doing a, she's going to be doing a workshop with us uh, here in February. Oh, great. So I'm excited to continue uh, this work. Um, and I do thank you for having this very open and candid conversation with me uh, today. Um, definitely gave great. Me some other I hope it helps to think about. And just to remind people that, you know, buying copies of our book for their family and friends is a nice Thanksgiving present. <laughs> Always. <laughs> right. All right. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I look forward to having continued conversations with you and your colleagues. Oh, good. Thanks, Deborah.